Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 178 recorded September 6th, 2014. So today we're doing one issue of Voyager to finish off that whole telepathy war thing. Ha! And then... Ha! I say! (laughs) And then we're going to actually finish off Deep Space Nine's run at Marvel with issues number 14 and 15. And I think 15 was a pretty good issue. Nice way to cap things off. Um, But uh, 14... Well, it was light. It was light. Right. I'm sure we'll have a few things to say about it. Yes, we will. Then, of course, part five of the telepathy war. That's why I was saying, ha! Right. This is how they wrap it all up. I'll wrap it all up. (laughs) Well, you'll see in a minute, but it doesn't have much to do with telepathy war to me, but whatever. Yeah, we'll we'll see if it has anything to do with it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. All right. Anything else? Let's do it. All right, so I get the honor of doing Marvel's Voyager issue number 13. This has a cover date of January of 1998. It is entitled Cloud Walkers. The writer is Lori S. Sutton. Penciler is Terry Pallet. Inker is Al Milgram. Chris Apollopoulos and Virtual Calligraphy are the letterers. Matt Webb, colorist. Chip Carter, Starfleet advisor. Tim Tui is the editor, and Bob Harris, editor-in-chief. So the cover shows just a standard picture of Voyager in orbit over this cloudy planet. And then the caption reads, What dark secrets lie below on the planet of clouds? And then, to cap it off, there's a little logo, Telepathy War number 5. So that's how you know, oh, this is important to the Telepathy War story arc. So the story starts on the Elysian flagship. Uh, The Elysian warrior women have indoctrinated Janeway as a battle sister. Janeway is now sporting this helmet with this huge purple wig. After the ceremony, there's a huge party in her honor. Later and elsewhere on the flagship, Paris, Torres, and Ensign Kim are enjoying a simulation of the Elysian's design. It is a type of sport where all the players are wearing wings and can fly, and they battle each other with staffs. Looks like the type of game Hawkman would play. The Voyager crew seem to be enjoying it, even though they're taking a lump or two from the much more experienced Elysians. The next day, Voyager is set to depart the Elysian fleet. The crew are spent after their time at the various parties. Also, many of the ship's reserves are quite low due to their recent escape from the Leviathan a few issues back. Some charts that the Elysians provided show where Janeway can go to try to barter for many of the materials that the ship needs. Later, Voyager has arrived to the planet Thescara. The planet is made up of dense clouds that the crew can actually walk on. Pressure suits are still needed due to the extreme pressure on the planet and the lack of breathable atmosphere. The Elysians here are female, as we saw earlier, but this time they are Caucasian-colored and not the blue tint that we're used to seeing previously. They offer to mine the materials that the ship needs from the atmosphere closer to the core of the planet. They offer to take Tuvok, Paris, and Chakotay on the mining run. Here, the mining is done the use of these flying manta ray looking creatures called drones. Each crew member mounts a drone and they follow the Elysians down into the lower atmosphere. Here they witness the mining process. Drones are taken to these clouds where they absorb the material through their mouths and then they excrete the raw material through these little piping in their back. 
And then the Elysians come in and scoop up the materials and take it back to the surface. After a short time of watching this, all of the drones seem to be getting skittish, and they start a stampede of sorts. Paris's drone flies deeper into the planet's core, while all the other ones fly back up towards the town. Chakotay and Tuvok cannot find Paris, so they return to the ship to use its sensors. Once aboard the Voyager, they find out that even the more sophisticated ship sensors cannot penetrate the gas clouds. Janeway makes the call to have Voyager actually enter the atmosphere to take up the search directly. While Voyager is traveling into the planet, Kess has a two-page vision of what is happening in the Alpha Quadrant in Telepathy War issue number one. This is a shameless plug into this story and serves no purpose. While Voyager is inside the planet, it finds what has been spooking the drones. It is a pirate ship that is illegally mining the materials. They find Paris aboard the ship, and they beam him back over. He tells them that the pirates are in a part of the planet that the Elysians deem a nature preserve. The ship starts to attack them, but instead of doing damage to Voyager, it sets off several explosions by igniting the gases that surround them. Janeway is able to disable the ship and drag it back into space. No explanation is given on how the drones will survive on the planet now that all this gas has been ignited, so we just shouldn't care about it. As the story ends, Kess comes back out and she warns everyone that she's had a vision. Expecting this to be some sort of explanation of the vision about the telepathy war, we are disappointed to learn that instead she had a vision about something killing the Borg. And whatever this is, is about to head over and kill them, too, to be continued. Wow, that's an exciting issue. It and, is a, a, and, a, and a, an appropriate way to end off the telepathy war uh, story arc. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Makes complete sense. So... I know you would agree. You actually said it in your synopsis, but if that if that turns out to be the only nod to the telepathy war, they don't say something else in the next issue, because then that would be part six, wouldn't it? And it's not. So if that's all they do with the telepathy war, it just touches off some kind of thing with Cass. Um, I agree with your, your your comment. It's a shameless ripoff. Right. So the only thing I can think of is the they they're talking about maybe could be you know the the cure or whatever that the telosians pushed through all of telepathic races and to cure them of the disease that the jemhadar created but that doesn't really make sense no and why would i mean if that was the case then why would this come and and destroy voyager no they're in the the delta quadrant i mean nobody as far as i know no one was affected in the delta quadrant right the telepaths there Right. Um, but, I mean, the Borg have made their way to the Alpha Quadrant and back a time or two, so... Well, yeah. Well, but... Okay, but the Borg have nothing to do... Okay, so you're... This is the alternate theory. Okay, fine. Well, no, this is... Yeah, this is the only... The only way I can tie the two together is the they that they're, she's talking about is the Telosian's cure. But it doesn't make sense. And we see no. the Borg cubes blowing up and... Right. Yeah, so this is more like... What, what was that numerical race... Uh, that was completely C- completely CGI generated that they had. Yeah, um, species eight two nine or whatever. It Something was. like that, exactly. Now, now they kicked <laughs> the Borg's butt, so I could see them being that. But that's even more so. It has nothing to do with the telepathy war, but whatever. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm really thinking that this has to do with with species eight two nine or whatever it is, and right. not not anything to do with the telepathy war. Okay, but it was somehow the telepathy war that triggered her ability to see this threat. Anyway, whatever. No, nope, doesn't make sense. No. So I'm sure we'll we'll have something to talk about next issue uh, or the next time we do Voyager. Yeah, we'll either be really disappointed or really surprised that they they actually did something. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Um... I thought Janeway looks pretty wiggy in that big hair battle sister headdress. I thought that was like 
pretty striking because I didn't even know who she was at first. So when, when I turned the page, and then there she is. I mean, at first she almost looked like Chakotay in a wig, but <laughs> then I look closer, like no, that's Janeway, and she's the battle sister thing. Okay, fine. Huge headdress. Huge. Huge. Yeah, she 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 should be a Vegas showgirl. Exactly. You think the seventies women had big hair? Uh-uh. That is big hair. Right. Janeway. It kind of surprised me because I thought that that was their hair. I didn't know that it was some sort of elaborate wig that right. the uh, Elogians were wearing. Right. Apparently so. They're actually bald underneath. Go well, figure. We don't know that. Do we no, ever I, see them without no. the hair? I'm just I'm just throwing something out there. I oh, have no okay. idea. <laughs> yeah, coming to find out they're really just Bolians who are wearing <laughs> these wigs. Without the face ridge. Oh, there right, right. So I thought the I thought the Elysian uh, flying simulator was kind of was kind of cool, you know, with the wings and everything. Yeah, the Hawkman. Yeah, the Hawkman thing. That's right, the Hawkman thing. So I just thought it looked kind of cool. And Paris looks like he's just in ecstasy. He's just got a look on his face. Oh man, this is so cool. Of course, that's before he gets hit with a stick. But yeah, I thought it was good. It was, and it's just a two-page spread, so we don't really know. We don't know if he gets hit with a stick. Oh, or he's got to get hit with a stick. I mean, look at... That's Kim, right? Yeah, Kim's tumbling. getting whacked. He's getting whacked, and he's kind of tumbling. So, And so that's like a... So that's like a holodeck or something, right? Yeah, they or say is simulation, that so I'm assuming it's some sort of holodeck thing. Huh, yeah. Well, that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, no, that'd be really, really cool. Yeah. The, the only time we saw people like defy gravity on the holodeck was... Uh, there was that one episode of Voyager where... Bellana was doing skydiving and stuff like that, or actually space jumping. Oh, right. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, if, if the holiday is... could do this kind of stuff, I'd be doing that all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you want to get working on that program, Paris. I'd be when like, uh, run Superman 101, and then I'm just flying around. <laughs> In the outfit. <laughs> of course. You know, deflecting bullets with your chest. Yes. Right. Well, if the safeties are on the holodeck, everybody should be able to deflect bullets with their chest. There you go. There you go. But it's not quite the same unless you've got the uniform on. You've got to have the outfit. Well, that's true. That's right. That's right. No, I like that. I, I wish they uh, could have explained more. Maybe maybe Paris will build that in the holodeck like he said he's going to. Right. We'll see it later, I'm sure. I'm sure. Unless <laughs> it's canceled. Oops. So, one thing, this whole issue seems to be just like, one after another, the crew doing fantastical things. Maybe a little too fantastical to be believed. I mean, so they're doing their flying around thing with the wings and everything. And then they end up in the fantastical place of the upper layers of a gas giant planet. Mm -hmm. And they're surviving. And they're not getting crushed. And they're able to actually stand on thick layers of gas. Um, and it's like, ah, this is a bit too fantastical for me, quite frankly. I mean, I, I, I'd like to be able to have my, my imagination hat on and go with all this stuff. But I think it's just a little bit too overboard. But I'll also say that this is the kind of stuff they could never do in the TV series. I agree. I mean, you, you'd need a big budget for all this stuff, so... Yeah, and, and, you know, I kind of wish they didn't do it here, especially when it shows the town or yeah. the little... I mean, it looks like little blocky buildings, and it's supposed to be just floating on these bridges, or on these on these clouds. I mean, well, they're, wa they're walking... Clouds? Exactly, they're walking around also. So it's supposed to be on a, quote, thick layer of gas. It's like, no... I've never been to Jupiter, but I'm pretty sure you'd fall through and be crushed by the gravity. I don't know. Right. I mean, unless they were saying there's some kind of a force layer, you know, the, uh, a force field they're generating to keep things aloft. Okay. You know, I've seen Bespin, but they're not saying that. They're, right. they're standing on a thick layer of gas. I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't think so. Right, and and, and I mean, is it like a little island? So, like, if you go too far, will the gas become, you know, 
Maybe. Thin enough that you're going to fall through? Because obviously the, the drones have to get down into the lower atmosphere somewhere, right? So. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, and those drones. That, drones. So the, drones, because there's no drones. E, so Okay, fine. So drones, it's which is an interesting name. Okay, so so those drones are different from the stingray catfish things they fly around on. Well, they both they both call them drones, don't they? Okay. Well, so, I thought so, but didn't they look a little different, uh, the ones that were actually sucking in the carbon hydrazine or whatever? Right. Yeah, well, they look, whatever. They look, do look different. Like, one looks more like a uh, stingray, and the other one looks more like a you know whale shark or something. Okay. The giant mouth. Right. Anyway, the whole idea, I mean, having, I've actually read some books that actually were set uh, within Jupiter's uh, gaseous layers. But, of course, that was trying to do things with more scientific accuracy. So, the creatures that were there were kind of like, uh, like balloon kind of things. So, right. you know, they would have buoyancy because of the gas pockets that their body was made up of. Okay, that makes sense. These things look like aquatic beings. I mean, they actually look like a stingray with big old catfish whiskers on. Right. So, I don't know, a little bit too fantastical for me. You know, maybe kind of like an old Buster Crab uh, Buck Rogers thing or something. I just, I just thought it was a little bit too hard to uh, take seriously. Right. Yeah, they reminded me of uh, you know something we would see in Star Wars. Okay. Know, right. Okay. The yeah. fantastical that doesn't quite make sense, but you're just supposed to go with it because it looks cool. <laughs> right. But uh, I, I don't know. I just thought it was a little silly that they're all sitting on top of these things and and. and hurting these larger ones it just it's just i don't know it didn't do it for me right oh and and how about when they were initiating landing protocols when voyager was going to go down and look for paris it's like wait a minute blue alert exactly blue alert it's like did they always say blue alert i don't remember blue alert Uh, i don't remember it i was going to look it up but i never did right so you're going into a gas giant. So, yes, I could see you descending and heading through the layers, which you did end up doing. But landing? Landing. So Maybe it's just landing protocol, which means that you prepare it to go into atmosphere. Oh, okay. Okay, well, that makes a little more sense. Because it's bad enough thinking people can walk around on a thick layer, a uh, thick layer of gas. Um, but... You're not going to land a ship on it, right? You're not. You're not going to do that, right? And thank God they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. No. No. Instead, they go and blow up a whole bunch of gas, and then drag right. a ship back out of it, and yes. then all done. Well, yeah. I mean, well, at, at least it was a good thing they found somebody to fight. So the <laughs> pirates were handy for that. But yeah, right. completely agreed. Yeah, so you're igniting all the glass I- gas in the nature preserve. Oh, right. that's good. Yeah. Yeah, but we're not supposed to care about it because it's all done. Exactly. Anyway, wasn't that good? I mean, because gas would just keep expelling. I mean, the whole if the whole planet was really made out of this gas, the whole planet right. should have just exploded. Yeah, I- unless there were different kinds of gas in different areas, but that's right. a big assumption. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Anyways. Well, that's the last thing I have to say about that one. I, I had a complaint that um, when they beamed Paris over, mm-hmm. they're in the middle of the explosions. Mm-hmm. So you would think that their shields would be up, yet somehow they were able to beam Paris straight to the bridge. Yeah. Well, just another example where that rule only applies when it's handy to the story. Uh, and uh, the Elysians were Caucasian colored. You think that was just a coloring mistake, or I don't know, a, a, a different flavor of lesions? I don't know. Coloring mistake, more likely. Yeah, because it's only one panel where we can see her skin through the visor, and, and yeah, I'm I'm figuring it was just a coloring mistake. Yeah. Okay, that's it. I, I didn't really care for the jokes that Tuvok was making about you know this is relaxed for a Vulcan while he's riding the the horsey as Paris <laughs> called him. <laughs> right. Anyways, yeah, right. they sure they sure did pick up on it quick. 
I mean, I, I figured that they were going to be like, like riding with somebody that was qualified, certified to ride these uh, beasties. Exactly. But no, they're on it. No problem. I'm controlling right. it. No problem. Yeah. Okay. And that's where they're setting up on on the back of the beast, and they look like an action figure sitting on top of. Ah. On the, <laughs> you know, it looked like a playset type thing. Exactly, because they're kind of like leaning back. Right. And like their arm, like, and their legs are straight out, you know, because exactly. action figures don't have articulated legs a lot of times. Exactly. Or if they do, you know, they'll never actually stay in that position you put them in. They'll <laughs> all snap back into the uh, normal position they're used to. Yeah. Anyways. Anyway. And then, you know, last thing. Come on. You, your gas is, or whatever this material is that you're wanting is is basically drawn pu- poop. Right. Or farting. It's a yeah. gas, right? Well, I don't know. It, it looks pretty solid. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I took it as a gas and that it was farts. But Well, yeah, yeah and that's just it. Because they were talking about how normally they have to mine this out of rock. So, yeah. I mean, I guess there could be gas pockets inside of rock. But I took it that this is normally not a, a gaseous thing that, that the ship needs. Yeah. But anyway, so, uh, yeah. It's nice to know that uh, Voyager is going to be run on poop. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Neelix, doesn't this replicator food taste a little funny today? <sighs> All right. That's it. Okay. Ready to go? Let's go to the next one. Now, in this one, we are shifting into Deep Space Nine land. And with a light, fun-filled episode, or issue, I must say. Uh, that is titled, Nobody Knows the Tribbles I've Seen. And the issue is number 14 of Marvel's Deep Space Nine. Published date is February of 1998. Writer is Michael Martin and Andy Mangelis. Penciler Terry Pallet. Inker Al Milgram. Letterer Chris Elipolis. And virtual calligraphy. Colors by Matt Webb. Tribble, Chip Carter. No Tribble. Tim Tui, and Big Tribble, Editor-in-Chief Bob Harass. The cover shows a snarling wharf holding a Tribble in one hand and a phaser in the other, getting ready to blast the little critter. Wharf says, Buy this book, or the Tribble gets it. And, of course, there's some, there's some more Tribble, typical Tribble kind of uh, jokes. So at the very top, the uh, comic says, The Tribble with Klingons. Yes. Tribbles, troubles, we're going to hear all kinds of jokes like that. Two months have passed since the Dominion attack on the station, at the end of what has come to be called the Telepathy War. In Quark's bar, the proprietor is serving Dr. Bashir, O'Brien, Dax, Odo, Mr. Morn, drinks, while they reminisce about a recent mission that took them back into Captain Kirk's time period. Quark tells a story about when Worf was on the promenade, reacting to the presence of countless numbers of Tribbles all over the station. Quark says Worf had such angry murder in his eyes that he raised a phaser rifle and likely started blasting away at the furry little monsters as he ran shrieking down the promenade. Judzia calls Quark on his BS, saying nothing even remotely like that happened. Odo says if anyone had fired a phaser on his station, he would know about it before it happened. Quark is miffed by the doubt his story is receiving and moves to another table. The remaining friends talk about the surprise celebration for Worf they have planned for the evening and how Worf will likely hate it. Judzia describes how she had to threaten him with a batleth to get him to come to Quark's at all. He does not want to step foot in the place because he says it reeks of tribbles. They all start wondering why Klingons universally hate tribbles. Even Worf, who was raised mostly living among humans, hates them. O'Brien says he knows and tells everyone to gather around for a little story. O'Brien says the Klingons have a secret shame that stretches far back into their history to a time when they were not driven by warrior ethic, but were a lot softer than they are today. They actually had Tribbles living among them as beloved pets. 
The others question O'Brien's story, saying they don't believe Klingons would ever be triple-petting softies. But O'Brien sticks to his story, saying there's no way he could have made something up this weird. The Romulans had no problems believing it, and thought the triple-loving Klingons would be easy pickings and set about trying to conquer Quonos. A long and bloody war followed and land and in space. By the time it was over, the Klingons' warrior spirit was awoken, and once brought to a boil, their temper has never reduced back down to a simmer. The Klingons and Romulans became hereditary enemies after that bloody triple war. After the war, the Klingons had no further use for fuzzy, purring pets, so they gathered the tribbles up and got rid of them in all manner of terrible ways. Blasting them outright and beaming them into space are some of the more humane ways they were, they were erased from the surface of Quonos. Wiping them off the face of Quonos was not good enough for them, and the vengeful Klingons actually traveled to the jungle planet the Tribbles originated from, and f- laid waste to it and every Tribble they could find. Now satisfied, the Klingons expunged all records of the Tribbles from their history records, and they will never speak of them to outsiders. Worf almost admitted the whole story when they were on the K-7 space station back in the 23rd century, but his Klingon pride prevented him. After the story is over, they all take turns telling O'Brien why his story is a lot of hooey. Odo says that Worf told them they tried to destroy the Tribbles because they were an ecological disaster that eat everything they see and bred it at unprecedented rates. Not because they are long-lost pets that they're embarrassed about. Finally, Julian starts to advance his own theories about Klingon Tribble hatred by starting to describe how there are multiple Klingon racial types that are not all anatomically similar at all. Judzia asks where Julian is going with all this medical talk. That sounds way off the main topic at hand. Julian tersely says he will get to the point if he is allowed to do so. Julian says it is Tribbles that are responsible for the smooth-headed Klingons of the 23rd century turning into the bumpy-headed Klingons of the 24th century. Judzia says there's no way that large evolutionary change could have taken place in one century. Julian says he is sure, and he will prove it. He goes on to essentially say that both Tribbles and Klingons are allergic to each other, and on a very fundamental level. When Engineer Scott transported all the Tribbles on the Enterprise to the only viable location he could send them to, the nearby Klingon battlecruiser, that was the trigger to the Klingons. When Engineer Scott transports all the Tribbles to the Enterprise to the only viable location he could find, which turns out to be the Klingon battlecruiser, that is the trigger to the Klingon physiological changes. The close contact with the Tribbles triggered what appeared to be a rash on the forehead at first, but over time the changes became more pronounced and permanent. Worse, it was communicable and spread to the other Klingons when they returned to their base of operations. Having changed most of the Klingon race permanently in a way they did not appreciate, they took revenge on the Tribbles on their home world in an attempt to annihilate them. Judzia calls Julian on a story by saying he is trying to make them believe the Klingon appearance changed due to bad acne. Julian stands by his story and says it's as good an explanation for the mutual animosity between Klingons and Tribbles you are ever going to get. Judzia says Julian is not even close to the truth, and then she goes on to tell her story that she actually participated on in the far past. Judzia's story begins with three Klingon treasure hunters named Ko, Elray, and, and Zemp. They were all low-ranking functionaries of the Klingon Emperor of the time. They specialized in acquiring rare antiquities and were fairly inept at it. Only dumb luck allowed them to avoid capture and summary execution. They also sported the cranial ridges we all know and love while the smooth-headed Klingon race of their time had gained power. 
the dreaded Batleth of Molor was the object of their latest acquisition, and so happened to be Dax's also. You see, back then, Dax inhabited a male trill named Anjana, who was a manly treasure hunter with a whip, a snap rim hat, and a batleth. Like the three stooge, I mean, uh, Klingons, he did not let little things like the law stand in the way of obtaining treasures he hunted. Judzia is not proud of that period in, of Dax's life. Since the three Klingons knew the inside layout of the Emperor's palace, Exjana Dax made them partners in the Enterprise. The plan was to sneak into the palace with a replica batleth, switch them, and quietly escape with the real artifact. To get in undetected, Ko used his amazing biochemical and engineering expertise, very handy, to link thousands of creatures together into a vehicle of sorts that the four thieves could conceal themselves within and roll past the emperor's guards. The chief stopped Jadzia and asked her what kind of creature she is possibly talking about that formed this vehicle of concealment. Jadzia says, isn't it obvious, chief? It was a Trojan triple. The scene cuts to a huge furry brown triple, making its way along the countryside to the palace. The guards let it in as an adorable prize for the emperor. It was brought before the king, who enjoyed its soothing, tranquilizing trill. Klingons of that time were familiar with tribbles, but did not keep them as pets. The novelty of the giant tribble appealed to the bigger-is-better Klingon mentality. One consequence of the huge triple the Klingons did not count on is that if a small triple can soothe and even tranquilize humanoids, then a huge triple can tranquilize them into sleep. The Emperor and the Klingons in their courtroom went out like a light. The thieves emerged with earmuffs on and had the run of the place. Ijana swapped the fake batleth of Molor for the real one, but discovered the legend that the special weapon could bestow supernatural powers on the wielder was true. The weapon emitted some kind of subsonic pulse that the huge triple reacted to violently when it was approached. It shrieked obnoxiously and woke the sleeping Klingons. The Emperor's guards closed in on the four thieves, who backed up against the super-agitated super-tribble. Luckily for them, the prolonged proximity to the Batleth's vibrations broke the bonds that bound thousands of tribbles together. Not only did the giant tribble break apart into thousands of individual tribbles, but Ko's manipulation that brought them together had a side effect. They were now carnivores, and they were hungry. They set about devouring everything they could get their fur on. In the ensuing melee, the four thieves were just barely able to escape to their ships with their lives. Unfortunately, they had to leave the blade behind to keep the tribbles in the agitated state that covered their escape. Klingon-tribble relations have never been quite the same since that day. O'Brien tells Jadzia she must be part Irish for coming up with such barroom blarney as a Trojan tribble. They all bust out laughing as Worf finally enters Quark's. Jadzia welcomes him, but Worf assumes that since the laughing ended so abruptly when he entered, they must be talking about him. Worf asks Mr. Morn to tell him what they were saying. But before he can respond... O'Brien and the others tell him what they were conjecturing about. Worf does not know why they would be talking about that subject. Quark enters with a warrior's tankard of prune juice and a covered plate that he puts in front of the now-seated Worf. He lifts the lid to unveil a triple. Worf is incensed and gets up to leave. But before he can leave all the way, Clark cuts open the dead triple to reveal it's stuffed with gach. Everyone is repulsed by the sight as Quark basks in his own clever joke. Quark leaves 
with the delicacy by popular demand, but says someone will have to pay for all this. Finally, with Worf and Quark gone, Odo offers to inform the Liars Club of the real reason Klingons and Tribbles hate each other. He says Mr. Moore knows the truth and told Odo earlier that day. Odo puts his arm around Morn and turns the floor over to him. The normally silent Morn sits there uncomfortably with all eyes on him. The end. Now, was that a real Tribble he cut open? Because I thought it was a Ferengi fuzz gourd. No! Oh! <laughs> uh, I thought he was just calling it that as slang. Uh... So he it you so it was actually a it was actually some kind of vegetable a gourd that's the way I think it is I think okay. it just he he made it because it looks like a triple but I don't think it was really supposed to be a triple well why was everybody so disgusted because it looked like a triple with live gawk in it uh well okay i I thought it was a real triple yeah but but you could be right Fuzz if it gourd. is a real triple I thought that was slang. that he Cut it well, open, that's what I thought. Stuffed worms in it. I I agree. <laughs> but I just thought Quark was a disgusting person, and that's why everybody was like, "Ugh, take it away, take it away, it stinks." Anyway, <laughs> I, I loved the joke about Morn about to tell the story, and and then it cuts off. Well, exactly. If you know the character, that's an ongoing joke, right? Where people say, "Oh, Morn told me the best joke the other day," and it's like you never see him talk, you never hear him talk ever. Right. Loved it. Yeah. And I, I thought that was great that Odo came up with that. So not only did he come up with something to say, but he basically just dished it to Morn uh, to put him in a spot. So it was kind of a, a, a double joke. Right. So what would you think of the issue? Three humorous takes on why Klingons hate Tribbles. Obviously, if you take it for what it is, a nice light little story that tries to be humorous, then... I thought it was fine. Some of the jokes worked. More of the jokes didn't work. But the whole idea of them telling these different stories that get more and more outrageous, I I liked it. But the trick is to be outrageous without being stupid. So, you know, it, it worked in some cases and it didn't work in other cases. And I think from the discussion we had before the uh, recording, you and I may have some dis- Differences of opinions on what worked as humor and what didn't. All right, so let's just take one story at a time. So the first story is, um, well, I guess the first story would really be Worf just running around the promenade shooting him with with a phaser rifle. That would be the first one. Yeah, so that one worked or not worked? Well, I, I I didn't take that one as being quite as humorous. But I guess the idea of Worf basically taking all of his Starfleet morals, throwing them out the window, and running down the promenade shooting tribbles, I, I guess that's funny. But no, I, I like. I that really one. didn't. I really didn't take that one as as overly funny. But yeah, you yeah, like that I, one. Okay. I just liked, you know, uh, Quark's descriptions of you know the snarls and the uh-huh. squeals <laughs> of the dying tribbles. Oh right, I, just, right, I thought right. his explanation was really funny yeah and then to come to find out he wasn't even there and he's just <laughs> he heard it exactly yeah i thought right. it was pretty funny and i and i thought that was kind of cool how that kind of triggered the whole uh you know liars club thing right uh, apparently spontaneously right spontaneous. which is which is pretty good that that they could all come up with um with stories on the fly like that right uh, of course, I think Julian's is the weakest, but whatever. All right, well, let's take them in order. So the next one was okay. Miles's. He, uh, yeah, Miles. My, Miles really got it going. Um, so this so, was the uh, they used to keep them as pets, and then yeah. uh, right. So I thought it really. I think it worked. The idea of Klingons as mellow suburbanites that love to pet Tribbles and walk them, you know, take them for walks in Bermuda shorts. I thought that was funny. <laughs> Uh, it was over the top. It was ridiculous. But, you know, so they actually have panels, if you don't have the comic, <laughs> that that look, tracked housing, um, 
one guy's raking fences. white picket fences, one Klingon is like raking leaves, and then the other guy, his neighbor right next to him, has the Klingon, you know, from the waist up, he's got the Klingon outfit, warrior's outfit, and from the waist down, he's got Bermuda shorts, and he's got a leash on a treble. Uh, I, I, ridiculous, I agree, but I laughed. I mean, yeah, not I out agree. loud, but I, I, I found that funny. It was it was funny. I just liked the ridiculousness of the neighborhoods and stuff. Yes, yeah. And then the the Romulans just blasting it and killing all the poor Tribbles and Klingons. Right, exactly. Um, then they know, might take it a little too far when the Klingons deem that the they have to get rid of the Tribbles and they just load them up into dump trucks and yeah. beam them out into space. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the the reaction in all the stories, the reaction of how the Klingons tried to get rid of the Tribbles was pretty extreme. They, I mean, they they were all trying to get rid of the Tribbles, and the Klingons were bloodthirsty about it. So, eh. <laughs> poor poor Tribbles. Uh, right, so I, 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 so I also liked hearing about the Romulan Klingon War. Just period. So, w- w- were they supposed? To, they they did. Isn't it canon that they did have some kind of war in the past? Right. Okay. I, yeah. I know. I have no idea about the details of that, but um, I thought it was kind of interesting. Even though this was not a real look at that war, I thought it was interesting at least hearing about it. Right. Yeah. And and supposedly the the reason why that war was so big was that um, the Romulans gave warp technology to the Klingons without you know because they didn't have the first contact restrictions and stuff like that. And then oh. that's what caused, you know, the the Klingon Empire to build up as fast as it did when it truly didn't deserve it kind of thing. Okay, and I thought, I, I thought I had read someplace that the same thing happened, but it was the Federation that did it pre, uh, you know, pre... Well, I guess we did get the non-interference thing kind of quick on Enterprise, but right. I, I had heard the same thing, but the but it was the Federation that did it. But I can kind of see it making more sense with the Romulans. Right, because out of all the species that we know of, you know, aside from, you know, the... the, the what, were, what are the... Uh, what are the... It's not the founders, but what are the... What's the really old species that seeded the universe? Oh, yeah, in that one episode of Next Gen. Yeah, the, so uh, taking uh, them out of the equation, I mean, the, Vul- the Vulcans would have the... Would be the oldest race that has warp technology and since the Romulans are an offshoot of them it would make sense that the Romulans would be flying around doing devious things with their warp technology as opposed to the Vulcans right yep so anyways I I, I liked I liked that one I liked that story so the next one you thought was the worst oh yeah I think (laughs) I think Bashir's whole attempt to take some kind of a medical tact at this to try to explain it, I personally I didn't think it was that funny, and I think it totally fell on its face. But okay, so the re- the only redeeming thing about his story, you know, besides seeing some of the old Taz people, is also seeing Jadzia in uh, in a Taz miniskirt. She looked very very nice, very very nice. Uh, naturally, in the third story, I thought the best thing obviously was Trojan triples. Now, as a concept, forget it. It's ridiculous. I mean, the Tribbles coming together because of some, you know, some Klingon's clever uh, genetic manipulation. Give me a break. But the whole idea of Trojan Tribbles, I thought, was funny. Well, the I- the idea of Tribbles becoming big and and colonizing together is actually from the animated series. So there's uh-huh. actually an episode where that happened. Yeah, where they had the giant Tribbles, and I think they were supposed to be a colony of a bunch of tribbles working together. So I thought that was actually kind of kind of cool to, you know, throw in a a, a nod to the animated series. Would you think that's a nod? Okay. Well, I just thought it was, you know, because the animated series is not considered canon, so, you know, that she's telling this really fantastical story about tribbles and then kind of, kind of works in something that happened in the animated series. I thought worked pretty well because they're both a little ridiculous. Okay. Yeah, and I did not recall that animated series episode at all. But um, I, I, I just thought because when when Jadzia was describing it, and it's like, did I miss something? What is she talking about? 
And then the next, you turn the next page, and then, well, of course, Chief, it's a Trojan Tribble. It's like, oh, oh, that's funny. I, I, I thought that was funny. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't remember that, uh, that anime series episode. But people didn't go riding around inside the Tribbles, obviously. No, no, okay. they just rolled around and ate stuff. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that another David Gerald script or something? I doubt it. Okay. I, I don't know, though. So the uh, the Three Stooges, I, I did not catch that they were supposed to be the Three Stooges, so that was that was pretty funny. And, and reading their names out loud, it's really obvious, you know. Right. Mo, Larry, and Shep. Exactly. <laughs> now, they didn't do all that much with that. I mean, they, they had a little bit where they were, they were knocking each other, and there was even one part in one panel where, uh, where Mo knocked probably Shep. Right. Over and then Larry was like like on his four appendages behind him like a, yeah, like an old fashioned fashion joke right um, so you know there was some slapstick there and it was a little extra thing and I doubt if anybody in the twenty fourth century would know about the Three Stooges but it was good for the twentieth uh, century twenty first century reading audience right now I, I was more hung up on the. Uh, uh, in Jana Dax. Oh yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Which who I looked like Indiana Jones? Exactly. Yes. So I thought that was actually pretty funny. Yeah, he he, he had the coiled up um, whip at his side, the snap rim hat, and it looked like it looked like he had was that some like like some Klingon. Wardrobe mixed in there? Yeah, it was basically Harrison Ford's outfit from Temple of Doom with the with the Klingon armor, right, on his okay. chest, and that was it. Right. It was it was pretty hilarious. Even, <laughs> even the whip was there. I thought that was funny. Exactly. It was all nice touches. Right. Yeah, because of that, I was really hung up on the three the three Stooges. Trying, I was trying to work them into um, you know an Indiana Jones story. Right. And I was you know. I couldn't. I couldn't quite. I didn't make the connection because I wasn't thinking Three Stooges at all. Yeah. Well, I think that's what derailed me. Right. No, I I, I like that story, the the giant triple one. Um, as far as the bumpy headed explanation, I I liked that story, um, only because you know they're they're trying to really explain why. You know, like Koloth and and other people that we saw in the original series. And then again, in Deep Space Nine, now has the bumpy heads. I just—it's—it's it's a ridiculous story, but I actually—I kind of like that one better than you did. Uh oh oh, uh, Bashir's. Yeah, Bashir's. Yeah, they're allergic to each other. Right. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That that one's trying to explain the bumpy heads, and uh, Judzia's story doesn't explain the bumpy heads at all. Doesn't no, even, no. Doesn't even address it at all. Just the hatred. Yeah, no. Bashir's was the only one that addressed the bumpy heads, and I liked it. I thought it was yeah. ridiculous. I mean, it was—it's a stupid story, but I just you know, better than better than Roddenberry's explanation as well. These these Klingons are from the south. We've only seen Klingons from the north. You know? <laughs> well, he's trying to make a joke too, but right. No, that was good. Yeah, and so uh, let's see. Yeah, so we already talked about Odo's comment or Otto's Otto's little mini joke. So. Right. right. Aside from that, the only other comment I have is right after Miles' story. Right. There's just a random yes. panel of, I have the of same a guy one. carrying a bag of trouble. I <clears throat> Exactly. I have the same comment. So I completely agree. So what was that supposed to be? I mean, were they still clean? So they were still cleaning up tribbles from the journey back into Kirk's time. Is that it? I am assuming so. Well, I mean, well, they did say that it's still supposedly Quark still smelled of Tribbles, right? So it's just, but even with all that said, it seemed very random to me, and apparently to you too. Yeah, I was. I had to go back and reread everything that was on that page to see if I missed something in the dialogue to explain no who this guy was. Well, and I was like, well, maybe yeah. he'll show up later and he'll spill the bag, or somehow this this will have some sort of bearing later in the story. Nope. Nope. You never see this dude again or the bag. No. And and if that guy wasn't there, no effect on the story. 
Absolutely not. <laughs> um, and then having them th- him there really, ju- I guess it just reinforced the idea that they were still cleaning up from the Tribbles, and that's why Worf could smell, still smell things. I don't know. That's about the only kind of stretch of anything that makes any sense. Right, right. Eh, whatever. Okay. I'm done. I, I thought it was light and airy. It's nice to have a, a nice, light, airy, uh, low-body count uh, story every once in a while. Right, so. right after the big telepathy war. Yeah. Whew, that was exciting. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, issue number 15, uh, February of 1998, uh, entitled Requiem Obsidian. Uh, the writers is Andy Mangus and Michael Martin. Penciler, Greg Scott. Inker, Joseph Rubenstein. Letterers, Chris Alopoulos and Virtual Calligraphy. Colorist, Chi Wang. Starfleet, Chip Carter. Editor, Tim Tui. Editor-in-Chief, Bob Harris. So the cover shows Garrick clutching his head while visions of Zareel, Odo, Bashir, Kira... And a skater girl with half her head shaved and some tats. They all swirl around him. And then the caption reads, past memories, present sufferings. So the story starts eight years ago on Terok Noor. A woman in skin-tight black leather and half her head shaved is being stalked in the dark corridors. She fires a weapon at where she thinks her Cardassian pursuer hides. But he's not there. Instead, he jumps out from behind her and he plunges a knife into her chest. Their eyes lock as her blue blood spills onto the floor. We flash back to today. A simple, harmless tailor is opening up his shop there on the Deep Space Nine promenade. He glances up and he sees the dead woman from eight years ago. They both seem shocked to see each other. The woman bolts away. Garrick tries to follow, but she gives him the slip. Later at Quark's, Garrick and Bashir are having lunch. Garrick is preoccupied. Bashir asks what the problem is, and Garrick is surprisingly open about it. He says that he killed a woman eight years ago on the station when he worked with the Obsidian Order. And he saw her again today. He even tells the reason why the Obsidian Order wanted her dead. She was a telepathic courier that was used by the Order until they thought that the telepaths were knowing too many secrets. So then they had them all killed. Garrick looks at the Dabo table, and he sees the woman there smirking at him. He tries to attack her, destroying some chairs and knocking over a lot of the guests. Odo and another security officer arrive and subdues Garrick. Bashir takes the Cardassian to the medical bay. Later, Garrick wakes up in medical to find Zail next to him. Bashir tells him that his neural pathways are breaking down and he will die if it is not fixed. They talk about the past episodes of the show for possible reasons as to what's causing this neural pathway degeneration, but the good doctor has already ruled them all out. Bashir gives Garrick some medication to at least stop the hallucinations. Zail and Garrick head back to his shop when he sees the ghost woman again. He tells Zail to get to safety, and he chases after her. He catches up with her in an area still under construction from the last Jem'Hadar attack during the telepathy war. She turns out to be all too real, and the two of them fight hand-to-hand. She tells him that she's actually the sister of the woman he killed all those years ago. He assumes that she's there for revenge, and he does not blame her. She tells him that her sister implanted a psychic engram... That is now killing him. She says that she's there to try to stop it, even though it will come at a high price for her. Garrick tells her that perhaps he deserves this for all his past transgressions. She says that she's doing this to atone for her sister's actions and starts to do a mind meld of some sort. This puts Garrick into a trance-like state. Neither one of them acknowledges the female Bajoran security officer that arrives and demands that the woman release Garrick. When no one moves, the officer shoots the telepathic woman. The officer orders an emergency beaming of the three of them to medical. She seems to have an aversion to teleporting for some reason. 
Once everyone is in medical, Bashir says that the alien woman is dead and that Garrick is making a full recovery. When Garrick wakes up, he's visibly upset that she has passed away helping him. Bashir told him that the woman cured him at the cost of her own life out of forgiveness. The end. And then, as a little tease, the letter column talks about how the monthly title of Deep Space Nine and Voyager are coming to an end, and they're going to be replaced by miniseries. And that the first Deep Space Nine miniseries is released later in 1998. However, we all know this is not to be. Um, And it does give a little synopsis of what the miniseries would be about. It says that we will learn what it was like when the occupation of the station was in full effect. Hmm. But it never came to be. Dang. It never happened. So obviously sales were just not good enough to continue. Even, well, in, a, even in a miniseries form. Well, no. What happened was that Marvel lost the rights to Star Trek. Well, okay, but why? It oh, was renewal time just... and they wouldn't pay enough? Yeah, probably. So Paramount just said, Sorry. Right. Hmm. Paramount was like, show us the money. Hmm. That's a shame. Yeah, it is a shame because these were actually pretty good. Yeah. I, I've read a few of the Wildstorm comics and they're they're not too bad either. They're hmm. kind of in the same vein. Okay. Well, I, of the three, I like this issue the best. I think you also in the, are in the same boat on that. But right. I love Garrick. Love the character. And so it's nice to see him being the uh, focal point of this uh, story. Right. And I like showing him when he was part of the Obsidian Order and, mm-hmm. you know, an assassin. That was actually pretty good. Yeah, exactly. So the thing about him is normally you don't – he's always feigning, oh, I'm just a simple tailor, a simple right. businessman. Now you're seeing him in full-on Obsidian Order mode. And he's pretty deadly. So I think that's pretty cool. I like that. Right. I needed. I really need to go back and watch um, Deep Space Nine. Because I don't mm-hmm. remember him ever just coming out and saying it. That, you know, telling anybody, even Bashir, of what his past was. But here right. he, he's pretty open about it. Oh, he's very open. Never seen him that open, I don't think, ever. But to, to your point, yes. So I'm... Either I'm misremembering or this this issue just kind of took some liberties with that. Right. Well, maybe they're just underscoring how how Garrick was so wigged out over the whole thing in his medical condition that he actually would divulge such things. I I was surprised when he was doing it. Yeah, maybe, maybe, you know, because they talk about those episodes where the implant was in his brain and things like that. So maybe, maybe when that all came out, it was... It was, uh, you know, maybe he at least confided with Bashir that he was part of the Obsidian Order. Right. I'm going to have to go back and and watch some of that. Yeah. Well, the other thing, yeah. The other thing that's interesting about Garrick, though, is you never know when he's lying and not. Right. I mean, obviously he's lying about just being a simple tailor. But (laughs) it's like even when he says things, like he says, and it's very cool when he says says it towards the end, before he starts uh, making his moves and trying to smash up the place. Uh, Doctor, I have no conscience. I love that. That's great. But then later, based on something he says at, towards the end, obviously he does have a conscience, and he does act like he has a conscience. So, again, it's the liar in Garrick, the practice thief, the guy that you never can quite tell when he's telling you the truth or not. Um, I, I thought that was cool like that right no i'm with you 100 percent. yeah right and i even liked the uh the sister storyline I, I like you know he killed he killed a woman eight years ago she implanted something in him and then the sister doesn't agree with what the sister did so she's going to make it right even though it costs her own life it's, she's going to basically sacrifice herself to save the person that killed her sister so i mean right. it's just like man that's that's dedication yeah, that's dedication. That's all, that's all cool, and I like that part. However, a few things about this race. Uh, what Olinar, I forgot what their names are, but... Uh, she seems to be a very moral person, uh, the sister. And, right. then, and then the previous sister, 
I mean, the, the, the one that was originally killed. I mean, she seems... I mean, supposedly it's... It sounds like it's, it's, a, it's a fairly nice race of people, despite how they may look. I mean, it looks like somewhere between Trinity with the black leather skin-tight stuff and what what you call it, some kind of a, a skateboarder kind of thing cuz right. cuz the hair is all sweep swooped over and long and black and then completely shaved off for half of the head i right. mean she looks like some kind of punk thing or right. whatever um but they seem to be like a good race of people at least by those two examples but then what are they what are they doing being involved with um with the obsidian order being some kind of couriers or something i mean they must have known what they were doing and by the way why would it ever be a good idea to have a telepathic race being couriers for you? Right. Didn't make I mean, sense. Or I they mean, didn't really go into it. Yeah. Do a Johnny Mnemonic thing where you've got a, you know, a flash memory put into somebody's head so they can carry the information without actually being conscious of its contents. That's what you want to do if you want a courier. To be I mean, honest, you, that's you, what I was thinking that they were doing here. Well, yeah, right. But how does tel- telepathic ability help with that? I mean, it's just the opposite. Well, I don't know. I, I would think that any race would want to use telepaths maybe to read their enemies' minds, but would always have to deal with the idea that they could end up reading <laughs> their masters' minds too. I don't know. It just I don't see the benefit, but I see the danger. So right. I don't see why the Obsidian Order ever used them in the first place. Right, and they do not explain. I mean, it's just a two-sentence explanation sure. as the whole thing. So right. I'm, I'm with you. I kind of took it that they were somehow able to implant the data into their telepathic brains and then get it out without, without them knowing really it. knowing what was going on. Kind of yeah. like a Johnny Mnemonic thing, but uh, without the hardware. Right. But, um, but again, that was all conjecture on my part because it doesn't say that anywhere. It just yeah. says that they're gentle people, loyal yeah. and reliable. Right. That's it. Right. So you should get a race like that who aren't telepaths. <laughs> They'd be less of an issue. Anyway, whatever. Right. So I thought the artwork was pretty good in general. And I especially think they did a good job in capturing um, Garrick's facial expressions. Because something that's very... I think the actor, I don't know what his name is, but the actor who played Garrick I thought was very good. Just the right amount of flowery speaking, you know, stylish speaking... But then, of course, it's facial. So it's, it's verbal and nonverbal. I think the actor did a great job with, with the character of Garrick. And I think the artist captured some of that stuff kind of well um, in, the, in the issue. So right. I think kudos to the artist. I think they did a good job. Yeah, Andrew Robinson was Garrick. Oh, yeah. okay, the actor. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if he's ever been in anything else, but I agree with you. The, the, the eyes, I think... Garrick always had these these great looks with his eyes, and I think they're really captured here in the in the comic. Right, where he just kind of looks off and he's thinking of something, but because he's such a mystery, you don't know what he's thinking. You know exactly. Like? But yeah, I, I liked it. I, I thought that was good. Right. The the one character in this story that, and again, because it's maybe because I haven't watched Deep Space Nine in such a long time, is this this other security officer, this woman who doesn't yeah. like to be beamed, and yeah. I I thought her she was an invention of this comic series because she's been in the com- she's been in the series before. Uh, she played a big role in that one where Rom to the rescue. Issue. That's right. That's right. So, but I I don't remember ever seeing her on the series. So I could be wrong. Maybe she was there, uh, or maybe she was there in the background. They just brought her into more prominence. She had more of a front leading role in 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 the comic. But I do not remember a female deputy to Odo that had. You know, this much... Uh, Screen time? Exactly. Speaking parts. Right. And for the whole comment about, oh, I'll never get used to beaming. Right. Well, that, then I was like, oh, well, she must be somebody, because that seems pretty random. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Doing a little McCoy thing there. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Right, so uh, again, maybe I should maybe I should do more research. <laughs> maybe or not. Well, this series is over, so I guess we won't have to worry about her showing up again. No. If no. she shows up in the Wildstorm stuff, then we'll know a hundred percent she's from the show. Right, that's true. Or we could actually just try to look her up on Memory Alpha. Oh, that seems like too much work. Oh, okay. 
All right. What else they, you got? They do a good job. I got nothing else. I enjoyed enjoyed the comic. My favorite of the group. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Um, and then I think the barroom one was my second favorite, and mm-hmm. just because it was a light, nonsensical mm-hmm. story. And then the cloud one is the worst. Yeah. <laughs> On so many levels. Anyway. All right. All right. Next week we're going to finish off Voyager with Voyager 14 and 15 and then Splashdown number one. So that's – they actually got their first miniseries uh, before Marvel lost the rights. So we'll start that up. Okay. Find out about this telepathy war business. How does, how does that fit into uh, this Borg destruction? Exactly. What is that great threat? Or does it? Or does it? We'll find out. There's something coming. You better buy that issue. There's something coming. Right. All right. Well, with that being said, I guess we'll drop off and everybody have a good week. Yes. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on the review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic. Second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell out of here.